We'll hear argument first this morning, number 97-1754, Immigration and Naturalization Service versus Juan Anibal Aguirre. Uh, Ms. Millett. Mr. Chief Is that the correct pronunciation of your name? Yes. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the Immigration and Nationality Act, Congress expressly vested in the Attorney General the authority to determine whether an alien who has committed a serious non-political crime should be denied withholding of deportation. Congress further made clear that once the Attorney General has serious reasons for considering that such a crime occurred, the bar on withholding is mandatory. The issue in this case is whether the Attorney General, through the Board of Immigration Appeals, had serious reasons for considering that respondents' acts of burning buses, destroying private stores, hitting, binding, and stoning innocent civilians constituted serious non-political crimes. What, by the way, if you have a chance, are we supposed to do about the fact that the uh, uh, individual now says that isn't a correct translation? He didn't stone any individuals. What he said was he threw stones against the side of the bus or something to stop the bus, but they didn't actually throw stones at individuals, which might be important. What should we do about that? Um, First of all, we disagree that it's important, but even if the Court considered that it it was, um, the, the respondent has filed a motion to remand with the Board of Immigration Appeals. And I think consistent with this Court's de- decision in Stone versus INS, um, this Court need, can go ahead and proceed to uh, review the judgment that's before it and allow that, that motion to proceed on its own track. Well, this tape question is a very late-in-the-day thing, is it not? It, it, mo- it most certainly is. It didn't appear until the brief in opposition in this Court. And that it wasn't was, presented to the Ninth Circuit at all? Not at all, even though the same counsel represented Mr. Uh, Aguirre there. Um, but that, again, the, the, the motion is pending before the Board of Immigration Appeals. We believe it ha- should have no impact on this Court's resolution of this case or ability to proceed and decide this case. Now, um, it is suggested by the respondent that somehow uh, the Board's and the government's uh, interpretation of the statutory standard differs in some way from that uh, recommended uh, pursuant to the convention and the protocol that uh, bind other nations generally. Mm-hmm. The language in the uh, convention and protocol looks about the same, but they say the handbook somehow establishes a more egregious standard. Um, how have other countries interpreted the protocol and the convention. Do we know? In, in this particular regard, on the question of on the question of balancing the risk of persecution, there are a couple of other things the Ninth Circuit required that haven't, as far as we know, been addressed by other countries. But on the question of balancing the risk of persecution, yes, um, there the, there are two courts that have directly ruled on it, and they are split. The Canadian court applied the balancing test um, that is recommended in the handbook without saying that it was compelled, but choosing to apply it. The British House of Lords has held that the balancing test does not apply. So we have a 1-1 split. Um, the uh, respondent, or I'm sorry, the United Nations High Commissioner in his amicus brief also cites a decision from a, a French commissioner of refugees um, in a case called FAM, P-H-A-M. That case, however, did not, first of all, has been vacated, and secondly, did not address the serious non-political crime exception. It addressed Article 33's particularly serious crime exception. Is that question, uh, whether there are serious reasons for considering that a particular offense qualifies as serious and non-political, is that a question of fact or law, do you think? 
Um, well, it, it has two tiers. The, whether the test that the Attorney General has adopted for identifying serious non-political crimes um, could, of course, be reviewed um, for whether its consistency with the statute, but because of the att- language that the Attorney General may determine and because of the serious reasons for considering language, that would be an extremely deferential review. If the test is legally correct, then the application of any facts in the record in a given case would be re- against that test would be reviewed for substantial evidence. Is the U.N. Convention binding on uh, the United States? The Convention is not. The, protoc- the, the United States is a party uh, to the protocol relating to the status of refugees, and that has incorporated uh, virtually, all, virtually all of the provisions of the Convention, including its def- definition of refugee, which include this portion of its definition of refugee, which includes a serious non-political crime exception. The only thing that is not carried over um, is the original limitations, essentially European limitations on the definition of refugee. Is the handbook handbook incorporated in the protocol? No, it is not. In fact, nothing, nothing in the text of the protocol or the convention mentions, let alone compels, Balancing the risk of persecution. Nor in our statute. Is that protocol self-executing? No, it is not. And so even, I guess, even if it did, if the, if the Attorney General's uh, reasonable interpretation was that that had not been uh, effectuated through United States law, again, that would not be We need a statute that, that implements it. Ab- we abs- don't have a statute that says you take into, into account the uh, uh, degree of persecution that will be received at home, and there just isn't a statute that does that. Absolutely. Although, again, the, um, the protocol doesn't do that either. Does it? it's, just the, it's just the handbook that sets up this balancing test. So there's no inconsistency. In fact, our statute seems to be very close to the protocol. There isn't a significant difference between those two. No, there, there is absolutely no, as we see, tension between the protocol or the convention and the United States law and the Attorney General's interpretation of that. The only question is whether we are inconsistent with a recommendation in a handbook written by the United Nations High Commissioner why, of Refugees. Why is that a question at all? Because, that, because that's what the Ninth Circuit relied on. Uh, <laughs> it's, not, it's not our question. <laughs> we, we well, in fact, I, agree and think it should not be a question. The Attorney General is, of course, entitled to give that document weight if she chooses interpreting the statute, but is not bound by well, it. Well, as I, I understand the respondent, as I understand the respondent, uh, they said, well, you can't really talk about McMullen proportionality, uh, the seriousness of the crime in light of the political objectives, if you don't also talk about persecution, which I take it you're going to tell us is an, a non-sequitur or or, or. That, that, that would be our position. The, the, uh, the test for serious non-political crime and the proportionality test that that applies are tests that focus on the character of the crime itself. Whether someone later faces a risk of persecution for protected status or protected conduct has no bearing on whether an earlier committed crime had a serious non-political character. It either was or was not a serious non-political crime when it was committed, and the fact that a risk of persecution materializes doesn't change that. Why not? That is to say, why? why? You might think normally words in statutes uh, have a context, and uh, suppose a person, your idea is you're just going to list every crime in the U.S. Code and put it on two lists. It's serious or not serious. Well, is it, why, why wouldn't you in this kind of situation where you say uh, a person, let's say, has a, has, a, has a minor drug offense that you might consider serious? Well, doesn't it make a difference whether we consider it serious for the purpose of the statute, whether that seriousness, because you called it that, it's so serious uh, that it means the person will be sent back to the same country where he'll be killed immediately. 
as compared with, he'll be sent back to the same country rather than a different country, uh, where he will serve uh, one day's uh, imprisonment. I mean, I might think, you tell me that this person's going to be killed because I have to send him back to the same country. I don't think that that previous marijuana crime is such a big deal. If you tell me, oh, we're going to send him back to the same country rather than a different country, and all will happen, he'll spend seven hours in a cell, I say, well, okay, I'll give it to you. I mean, why not make that kind of all factors considered? You're doing that with non-political? The first first thing to keep in mind is the question in this case is whether the Attorney General is compelled by the statute or the convention to adopt that approach, whether or not one thinks it would be a good approach to adopt. She most definitely is not, in our opinion, by the text, legislative history, drafting history of either the statute or, um, or the convention and protocol. The second uh, thing to keep in mind is you mentioned the history of terms. The term non-political crime does have a history. It's a, it's a term with, with uh, meaning in, in immigration, in, I'm sorry, in international law and in extradition law. And the balancing that the Attorney General has used to identify whether something is political or non-political draws upon that history. But it is still, both of them are, are, are describing the crime itself. The risk of persecution doesn't change the crime. The question is whether no, it's a I, may I clarify, crime. ask you to clarify one thing, because I think when Justice Breyer said it's just you list everything in the U.S. Code as serious or not serious, do I understand correctly that in defining what is a non-political crime, that the Attorney General is in sync with the handbook, that the d- dissonance comes up only at the tail end on the question of you then balance against the risk of persecution. But I thought in defining what is a non-political crime, it isn't simply a matter of going through the U.S. Code and saying this is serious and this is less serious. No, that, that is correct. That is correct. And, and sometimes the a- analysis of serious and non-political can overlap, but as I explained, the term non-political and the definition that the Attorney General has adopted is consistent with the handbook, um, is consistent with the Ninth Circuit's at least prior articulation. But the, the, the Attorney General rejects the gross disproportionality test, uh, as I understand it. Um, the, the Attorney General rejects the notion that things have to be tantamount to atrocious conduct. And yeah. How, Which I take it is what the Ninth Circuit was getting at on the second reason that it uh, — that, Yes, that, that, that is how we interpreted it. Uh, do, do I have to give the Attorney General's uh, interpretation deference if I think the Attorney General's interpretation may be wrong for a reason quite different from the reason that Respondent here says? Uh, it, it specifically, I, I don't care what the handbook says. I, I, I care what Congress passed and, and, and what, uh, what the, the fair meaning of our statute is. And frankly, when I — I find it quite incredible that we are uh, adopting an interpretation that takes into this country uh, people who commit any crime at all, even murder, so long as it's for a political reason and so long as it's not disproportionate. Now, there's a totally different reading of of political — I mean, I've never heard non-political crime. It's the opposite of a political crime. And and, uh, my, my normal understanding of a political crime is a crime whose definition, it, it's not the motivation of the criminal in committing a murder. It's rather the very definition of the crime is a political crime, such as the law in, in Cuba under which some journalists have just gone to jail because they criticize the government in the press, a law that prohibits criticism of the government, perhaps a law that prohibits, uh, even a law that prohibits treason. But when you're committing a crime that is independently criminal, murder, rape, whatever, the fact that you're doing it for a political motive, 
why, why, should that, why should that make any difference as to whether we want those people in this country? We don't allow those things to be done for political motives in this country. Do we want to admit immigrants who have that philosophy? Well, that is a choice, again, for Congress um, and the executive branch. Well, all Congress said was non-political crime, and and that's a perfectly uh, reasonable interpretation of what a political crime consists of. In fact, I think it's the more normal one. It's not, you you know, well, I murdered somebody, but it was proportionate. It was really sort sort of necessary for my political goal. We're admitting people on those bases? The question would be if the way in which that would come up, and it, sometimes there are things that are so serious, how serious it is can be factored in to whether or not it can even be accepted as non-political. Again, the history of the term political or non-political um, is a contextual inquiry, and the more drastic means that are employed is often a factor. On the other hand, someone who attempted to kill Hitler during World War II, or if they'd even, in fact, succeeded, would not, not necessarily have to be excluded from a country under the under this definition, and there are uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who succeeded in killing President Kennedy, would, would, is that a political crime? Um, I, I don't think that would be the position of the United States, and I don't well, think no, there's but no I mean, political motive. Look, backing <laughs> off and look, looking right. at it uh, as, as an act of someone, who, an assassin, mm-hmm. but who who, dis, who disagreed with the president, wanted him out of the way. Mm-hmm. Could that be a political crime? Could, could, could the acts of an assassin ever be considered a political crime? I think, yes, the Attorney General would have the discretion to do that under the statute. Um, so assassinate well, Queen Elizabeth to take a current uh, and, and quite likely uh, uh, scenario. That we'd have to, we'd just weigh it. Was it proportionate, you know? Could he have achieved his end by some lesser means, maybe assassinating somebody else? Well, I find it extraordinary that that's, that's what we're going to go through in, in, in deciding whether to admit people. Well, again, Justice Scalia, um, even, even if this Court finds it extraordinary, the question is what Congress and the executive branch have determined. This is question that, of that, is no, it, is no, it, it isn't. If it's extraordinary, you shouldn't interpret the statute that way. If it's permitted by the plain language, if it's not foreclosed, if it is not foreclosed by the plain language of the statute or the plain language of the Convention, in fact, we believe that that is the type of deference that the Attorney General is granted. All right, but Ms. Millett, has the Attorney General ever, uh, let's say, given a favorable interpretation to an allegedly political crime when the political objective was at least not an, accepted, an acceptable political objective to the Government of the United States? Um, I'm having a little have, re- have we rewarded uh, the enemies of our side, for example, uh, during the Cold War? Mm-hmm. Uh, when the Attorney General looks to what is, uh, let's say, the political motivation, the political side of the equation, does the Attorney General simply count uh, as political those, uh, those political objectives which are acceptable to the government of the United States at the time. It, it's a, a larger inquiry than that. And, for example, with the, uh, uh, the hypothetical about Queen Elizabeth, the Attorney General will also consider um, the, the structure of the country in which — first of all, we think it's perfectly — the Attorney General is free to consider political relations in this, in this aspect of the test. So that somebody who uh, tries to assassinate Saddam Hussein — with whom we're having a current disagreement and who fails and then wants to come here and get refugee status. We would take the position, uh, the Attorney General would take the position possibly that that's, uh, that that person is admissible because we're having a disagreement with the, um, with the regime. 
first of all, I, mean, I hesitate to identify any particular leader mm. or, or country or anything in a way that would suggest we would open the doors for, for killing uh, or not. And, in fact, often well, — I just want to know if right. that's possible but whether, under whether, your whether, view. I mean, actually, historically, the, the, in, in, in the late 1800s um, and early 1900s, sort of the political offense exception to extradition often had in mind the lone assassin who would go and uh, — uh, Shoot ahead of state, but the, the, the I don't. The attorney general would not. That person would be admissible, given refugee status, possibly. They, given the question is withholding of deportation, not refugee status. Possibly, yes. But what would the attorney I mean, general? Like what would the attorney general consider? You like Kennedy, you don't like Hitler. It's a question of where Saddam uh, falls in. You know, in, in that. Uh, no. What's more important? What, what is what on is that important? Graph. In, in the reference, what is important for the Attorney General to consider and has considered, in fact, in the, the Doherty case that came before this Court um, a few years ago, is whether there is a — how, how the, the means chosen um, relates to the ability to express and, and obtain — express political views and obtain political change in the governed country. In the United Kingdom, which was at issue in Doherty, the, the Attorney General concluded that it was an, a critical — an important factor that there are peaceful means for changing government and expressing views in that country. There may be countries and there may be times uh, in, in, in this world when there will be a country and there is no way of safely protesting, expressing your view, or changing the government except through violence. Now, that does not mean that all violence will be proper or will be acceptable. Um, I was going to suggest that this line of inquiry takes us somewhat far afield from the issues in this case, but, but maybe it doesn't. Um, uh, sh- must we confront in this case the issue whether or not the political motivation of the crime bears on its political character, as opposed to, on the other hand, defining a category of crimes, speech, uh, protest, uh, that are political? Must, must we do that in this case? Um, th- I, I don't think there's any question uh, that political motive is one Factor, but it is not the exclusive or driving factor. The question is whether it's a serious non-political crime, not a serious non-political criminal. And so the, the inquiry. It seems to me that as soon as you agree to that, and, I, and I certainly that's the Attorney General's position. The question is not how political it was, but whether it was non-political. As soon as you've got any political ingredient in the in the incident involved. It cannot be described as totally non-political. That, 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 that is not something we agree with at all, Justice Stevens. The term non-political crime, that the, as, as interpreted by the Attorney General, is a term with a history. And we're focusing on the crime, not the criminal. And that his, the history in international law, and in particular in extradition law, is a contextual inquiry. It's quite clear that countries, in fact, the French, the French test is an objective test that doesn't look at motivation at every, all. Every case, every crime involving the burning of a couple of buses would always be non-political? No, there's not a bright line of, of yes, it would be, or no, no, it would not be for political. But what, what is clear is that no, the fact that we have a political motivation alone is not going to make that a political crime, any more than blowing up a federal daycare center in Oklahoma City is going to be considered well, let me, political. Let me be sure I understand your, your, your position. The motivation, is it the motivation required to satisfy a statutory element of what the, how the crime is defined, or is it the motivation of the particular person who seeks withholding of deportation? Motivation is one factor in deciding what that, if what that person did qualifies as a non-political crime. It is one, only one but, but factor. But it's the motivation of the individual, not necessarily the term motive as used in the statutory definition of the crime. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's for Ben Sreya, you mean. Right. 
Well, whatever, whatever, the, whatever the term mens rea or intent or malice, whatever, it's not that term that you're talking about. It's, you're talking about the subjective intent of the defendant in the particular case. The, the subjective political motive is, yes, is, is, is one factor, although, um, again, in this contextual inquiry on the nature, whether something is a political or non-political crime, um, we look not only, again, at the motivation, but at the nature of the crime. And one factor that has been critically important in that analysis historically and is now for the Attorney General is whether civilians have been the target. And a political motivation that takes, that vents its political anger on innocent civilians, as occurred here, is has carries a heavy presumption in international law and in the eyes of the Attorney General that it is non- Miller, but can I'm we go back to Justice Kennedy's question? Because I am frankly getting lost. I thought that it was the position of both the Attorney General and even the Ninth Circuit that we are dealing with a non-political crime and that the only question is, given that non-political status of the crime, for whatever reason, I think Justice Scalia has suggested maybe it was the wrong reason for typing it a non-political. But anyway, I thought that the Attorney General's position and the Ninth Circuit was this falls in that category, but you still have to weigh the uh, persecution. I thought that's what this case was about. Um, well, there were a couple of other uh, — it's not absolutely clear to me where the other two factors of the Ninth Circuit me- mentioned, the atrociousness and the necessity and success, where they come into this, this calculus. But certainly on the question of balancing the risk of persecution, it's only been argued about deciding whether or not it's serious. And again, our position is not only that it is not uh, compelled in any means by the statutory language, and le- indeed it's strained, a strained one, but also to keep in mind that adopting such a balancing test would result in a complicated matrix of withholding judgments under which you're going to be having varying degrees of seriousness of the crime weighed against a very, varying gradations of actual threats to life and liberty. And then each of those judgments reviewed by courts all over the country. And the Attorney General has determined that not, because it's not compelled by the language, she elects not to impose that interpretive and administrative thicket on the withholding provision. I would like but to hear already willing to make, the, it seems to me, more difficult determination of, of how necessary it was for the political objective. I mean, that requires a knowledge of the political situation in the country and so forth and so on. That seems to me even harder than these other factors. Actually, the Attorney General is, is, is here opposing the adoption of a necessity test. Is it, is may it I right? ask you — no, please go ahead. May, may I ask you this question about uh, the BIA's application of what it at least understood was the Attorney General's test. The the BIA stated in a rather conclusory way that here the, uh, uh, the, let's say, the political character of the crime was outweighed by its seriousness, which it described as being great enough to come to the attention of the warring or the contending parties in Guatemala which sounds to me as though it's, it's saying whenever the crime, given its political motivation, is effective in getting the attention of the political contenders, they've gone too far, uh, that, the, that the criminality by definition at that point outweighs whatever political character they might have, uh, it might have. Uh, so it sounds as though, it, it, to put it crudely, nothing fails like success seems to be the reasoning of the BIA here. Would it be appropriate, even if we do not accept the Ninth Circuit's opinion, 
to, to send it back to the circuit, presumably to be sent back to the BIA, to explain its reasons for concluding, as it did here, a little better than that conclusory reasoning that I've just characterized is if, if you're successful enough, you necessarily fail under the statute. Would that no, be appropriate? No, it would not for two reasons. First of all, it's the Ninth Circuit that wants to look at necessity and success, not the Board. The Board's reference to well, the Well, I thought, the did, board, did I mischaracterize the Board? I didn't mean to. Well, I, I, uh, the, board's reference, the Board's reference to the level uh, attracting the attention of the governments was not to say you're disqualified because of that, but to use that to describe how much violence was involved against civilians here. There was sufficient violence against civilians that it would attract this, atten- th- this level of attention. So that is, again, evidence that this was not, as the Ninth Circuit characterized, minimal or, you know, So you're saying it was emphasizing violence. the violence rather than the merely criminal character. The level of, of violence targeted violent. at civilians is what was done. I would like what, to what some, May I just ask one? I know mm-hmm. that you want to reserve some time for rebuttal. Are, 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 you, are you saying that the crime is grossly out of proportional to the political objectives? Um, the violence against civilians in this case, yes, the board. And that's the test? I'm sorry? Is, I'm sorry. So, and that's the test? The test is, is either proportion, proportionality um, between, between the, the objective and, the, and uh, the means used or, or atrociousness. I would uh, appreciate thank the balance you, Ms. Uh, Ms. Wettstein, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to pick up on the point we, we, we just left off with Ms. Millett. Um, the, in answer to Justice Kennedy's question, the Court does not have to grapple or decide on the difficult what is a political crime, what is not a political crime. The issue really facing the Court is whether or not the Board of Immigration Appeals properly um, reversed the decision of the immigration judge. Well, the issue before us is whether the Court of Appeals correctly decided this case, isn't it? And there are two t- uh, the question presented is whether the Court of Appeals erred in reversing the decision of the BIA. Maybe you see it as the same thing, but it, it isn't quite the same. Well, Your if Honor. the Ninth Circuit was wrong, even if the BIA was wrong, the, that does not mean that we would simply say, go back to the BIA. Your Honor, um, the BIA, um, rather, the Court of Appeals gave three reasons for reversing the uh, BIA. And two of those three reasons were that the Board did not correctly apply its own test set out in the matter of McMullen, um, which is a BIA decision setting forth the standards for determining serious non-political crime. And to just uh, clarify with Justice Ginsburg for, for a moment, um, n- nobody says that this is a political crime. Everyone said that this was a — rather, no one said it's a non-political crime. Everyone said it's a political crime. The board um, — the immigration judge held that it was a political crime. The Board of Immigration Appeals did not — say that it, that it was on balance. It said on balance that it, that it was too serious to be political, um, but it didn't say that the motives were, on political, were, were non-political. In other words, um, the board misapplied its own — well, the board purported to apply the McMullen test, and um, it did not apply the five factors of the McMullen test. It only concluded as I, to one I, factor. I really find that difficult to follow because the McMullen test was a test that was said on the way to saying that the applicant there did not qualify for any dispensation. So to take a test that fits somebody who doesn't qualify, and then you say, but now somebody else who wasn't a a terrorist isn't a terrorist and therefore didn't satisfy those factors. I just don't think that you can get very far from taking a case that says this person has these five characteristics and he's out 
and say that means, well, when you don't have those five characters, you're in. I really don't think that McMullen can be worked that way in reverse. Your, Your Honor, McMullen um, mirrors and incorporates the handbook standard, paragraph 152 of the handbook, um, which sets out five tests. And when you apply those tests in this case — I thought the Board has always said, up until with the, that other case, that it isn't taking any position on this balancing. It notes that that's the position that the handbook takes. But as far as I know, there has never been a time when the Board said, we embrace that test. Well, Your Honor, there are two different kinds of balancing here. Perhaps if we separate them, that might be clear. There's, there's a balancing, the so-called balancing in paragraph 152 of the handbook, if we may call it that. And that really is — provides five tests for the political, non-political um, question. And then there's the separate question in paragraph 156 of the handbook, um, which is whether or not you consider the risk of persecution once you have already determined that the crime — isn't, isn't it agreed that the Attorney General and the United States are not bound by the handbook? Yes, Your Honor, that's certainly agreed, but the, but the Board has adopted the paragraph 152 in the matter of, of McMullen. So it wouldn't necessarily be bound otherwise, but that, — That balancing is a balancing of what? It's a balancing of the political, non-political question, Your Honor. It includes the motivation of the actor, whether or not the crime was out of proportion, um, whether or not there's a causal link between the acts and the goals, um, whether or not the crime was atrocious. Um, so in answer to some of the Court's questions Wouldn't earlier — Would out of proportion to the political objection, objectives right. or out of proportion to the common law character of the crime? Whether the act is out of proportion to the goals. The, the question in, 150, in the 152 handbook is whether or not this is a political crime. So um, if, it, if it's out of proportion, I think that was some of what — an answer to some of your questions earlier about um, killing someone, that you may have a valid political goal, but if you overstepped your bounds, if you did too much to meet that goal, then the crime loses its political character. It becomes a non-political crime. Is, is there in the handbook — or more particularly, are there in pre previous board opinions — think of previous board opinions. Is there anything in those opinions that either says directly or says by incorporating the handbook that in deciding whether a particular crime is political or not political, one will look to see — and these are the — whether or not the non-political part is, A, disproportionate, B, grossly disproportionate, or C, some other set of words, what in the previous board's opinion either says directly or through incorporating the handbook whether that standard should be proportionate, grossly disproportionate, or some other set of words? And if so, what does it say? Well, McMullen, Your Honor, is the, is the um, chief board decision about this. This has not — this issue has not come up very often in the board. Um, there are some early um, cases in the early 80s um, with Marielito Cubans. Um, this issue did not really come up with those in those cases. There have been um, uh, — this issue has come up in the extradition context, and there's some district court cases in, in a case called Doherty and um, also in McMullen, where um, extradition was refused because they were political crimes. Why, why isn't the — the test, not whether the board has followed an earlier precedent of its own, but whether the board's action conforms to the statute. Um, you know, why, 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 why does the Ninth Circuit say the board is wrong for not following McMullen, 
if, in fact, the board's decision is consistent with the statute. McMullen isn't part of the statute. No, Your Honor, but McMullen is the board's own decision deciding what the statute means. Well, to whom do we owe deference here, to the Attorney General or to board precedent or what? Well, Your Honor, to to return to Chief Justice's question earlier, the question is, was was the Court of Appeals correct? And the Court of Appeals said, here are the tests that you have laid out, and here is is, um, circuit law, and here is how these tests are supposed to be applied, and you did not correctly apply them in this case. Well, is there any room for interpretation of the statute here? And if so, uh, do we look to the Attorney General's interpretation and give it deference, or what do we do? Well, you certainly can do that, Your Honor. The, the statute itself only says serious non-political crimes. So the Court could say, you don't like the McMullen test, and, and you think some other test should apply. But, of course, no one was able to apply that new test in this case, so then a remand would be appropriate. If but you the Board is a creature of the Attorney General, is it not? That's correct. I mean, sh- she can overrule anything it does. Right. But she has not done that here. The, the Attorney General, um, neither on the, the 156 political crime balancing nor on the risk of p- persecution balancing, the Attorney General has not issued any precedent decisions on either of these questions. Her, her decision is limited to McMullen, and in the McMullen decision, the um, risk of persecution balancing did not come up. Well, doesn't it apply here, to go back to the Chief Justice's question, is there some reason that the most basic rule of administrative law wouldn't apply? Namely, an agency cannot change its decision without focusing on it. You have to follow your own rules. An agency has to follow its own rules. If that really hornbook rule applies, then I would have thought, since there's certainly nothing in this one paragraph of the BIA's decision that purports to change anything, I would have thought the question would be whether it's consistent with its prior rules. Of course, it can change those rules if it wants. But it hasn't. And that's why I asked you, what is the prior rule? Is the prior rule adopt the the handbook? Is the prior rule the word grossly disproportionate? Or is the prior rule something else? Because whatever that prior rule is, I guess they should have applied it here in the one paragraph. So what is it? Well, yes, Your Honor. I think the government would agree that the prior rule is a matter of McMullen, uh, and there has been no other decision well, by are, the Attorney are, General. Do you, do you agree with Justice Breyer that an, an agency could not come out differently in a particular case from the way it had before without some sort of an elaborate procedure? Um, well, Your Honor, since McMullen is, was the precedent decision here, I think if the but, Board were — Well, sup- supposing this were just the Attorney General. You know, not a BIA or something, the Attorney General. And last year she says, well, I I think McMullen is right. Then this year she says, well, no, I'm going to back away from McMullen some. Is there some administrative law rule that says she can't do that? Well, Your Honor, uh, she has, in fact, done that in a case um, uh, where she — Aren't you going to answer yes to that, that that an agency does have to focus on it? Well, the Attorney General, um, Your Honor, is — um, has authority over the Board of Immigration Appeals. As you've noted, sh- the, the Board is a creature of the Attorney General. So, at least under the statute, um, she can overrule a decision the Board of Immigration Appeals has Without made. focusing on it, even. Without focusing on it. That's, that's what Justice Breyer Without is. focusing on it. Yeah, Justice Breyer wants you to, uh, to, to uh, adopt the position that an agency cannot alter its course from a prior adjudication without focusing specifically on that adjudication. 
Right. Now, well, you say that you agree with Justice Breyer. I'm going to ask you what case you have in mind. <laughs> Arizona <laughs> Grocery. You say Arizona Grocery is the horn book. Arizona case. Grocery. <laughs> Arizona it's grocery. an agency has to follow its own rules. Well, we don't even have to reach that here. Of agency course. does have to follow its own rules right. in right. the sense of regulations. No, right. Arizona Grocery had no regulations. Well, I don't think we even have to reach that here because the board did not purport to change its policy. Well, I thought here. Uh, the board had taken the position in McMullen and in this case that uh, the question of whether a crime is a political offense is primarily one of fact. I mean, that is primarily a fact issue. And the board here determined as a matter of fact uh, that it was um, uh, one that followed uh, the language of mm-hmm. the statute. That it was um, the, the, the criminal nature outweighed the political nature. Right. Your Honor, that's all they said. They just simply announced it, and they violated another cardinal principle of administrative law that the agency is supposed to show that it reasoned and not merely reacted. And here the, the agency just simply concluded. So it isn't as if they overturned McMullen or they purported to apply McMullen, um, but they, they did not adequately apply McMullen. They did not. Well, have we applied some special rule in the area of fact determination that says they have to explain it, or can they just determine the facts? And do we owe some deference to that factual determination? Well, Your Honor, in, in this case, certainly if they had properly applied the tests, they would have reached a separate, a different result. Um, they simply concluded that the, the political element outweighed the criminal element. But if they had considered um, whether uh, Mr. Aguirre had political motivation, uh, whether there was a link between his acts and the, the goals, um, they would have reached a separate decision. So, yes, I think the facts, it, it, if it were, was just a fact determination, if they had properly applied their tests, they would have reached a different determination. Well, advert, if you will, for a minute to what the Ninth Circuit said. You, the first place, the, the, I guess the third reason for which the Ninth Circuit thought there had been error was the failure to consider the seriousness of the persecution. Uh, and I think you mentioned earlier that McMullen didn't involve that. So that's an open question so far as McMullen goes. That's right. Uh, and, and quite obviously the Board did not in this case uh, think that whatever the relevance of that factor might be, if relevant at all, uh, would have been in favor of your client. Uh, go to the second uh, — I think it was the second reason that the Ninth Circuit gave, and, and that was that the Board had failed to consider the — uh, the possibility of a gross disproportionality or the significance of gross disproportionality between the political and the common law character. In McMullen, uh, did, the, did the board adopt a gross disproportionality? Did yes, they use it did, that Your Honor. Term? That's right. It they applied used, the gross, yeah. and it also applied the atrociousness test. Um, so it, it applied both of those tests and found that McMullen's actions, um, contrary to Mr. Aguirre's actions, were, in fact, grossly disproportionate and were atrocious. And did they say that that was a condition? that that condition always had to exist in order for the crime to be uh, non-political? Uh, no, Your Honor. They didn't say it was a condition, but they, those, those are the tests that they applied. And that, again, They considered it a relevant factor. Is that — would that be a fair way I'm to sorry, describe it? In McMullen, did they say, look, it's, it's just one of the things that ought to be considered. Is there gross disproportionality or isn't there? Yes. Without it, saying that if you satisfy that test, a particular result necessarily follows. That's right. Okay. They did not say this is an absolute condition, but they said here is what we consider, and what they consider mirrors the handbooks. But they found it non-political here, even without finding it to be atrocious. Why should they then move on to consider the atrociousness factor, having found that the other factors already rendered it non-political? 
if the atrociousness factor is not essential, as, as you say it isn't, then what, what's the harm that's been done? They looked at the other factors and they said, gee, I look at these other It's non-political. Well, I don't even have to consider whether it's atrocious. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who cares? Mm-hmm. It's non-political because of these other reasons. Your Honor, I don't want to mischaracterize what I said. It isn't that the Board McMullen said it isn't a necessary factor. Those are the factors they considered. They didn't say which ones of those are necessary and which ones are not. Well, so then, it may be that's a necessary factor. But then, then it seems to me the agency could have done just exactly what I've said, and certainly we give the agency the benefit of the doubt. What, I mean, well, I assume we apply a substantial evidence test on, 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 on all those factual matters, right, so long as there's some evidence that could support the agency's determination. Is that right? Oh, I'm not sure the Ninth Circuit did that. It seems to me they, re- they reviewed all the factual determinations de novo. Well, Your Honor, it, it isn't so much a factual determination here as a procedural determination. The Ninth Circuit did not reach, reach its own substantive conclusion. It simply remanded to the Board for it to apply its test. So it's really more procedural errors. I, I, let's concentrate on what the, what the BIA did, because it seems to me that in characterizing what went on here, it did even what the um, handbook says. and it, it says in determining whether this is political or non-political, it's closest to the political camp when you're acting against the government or government personnel. Much more iffy if your target, the person you're actually hitting on, is a private individual or a private company. And then weakest of all, when you're hitting on private individuals and you're trying to produce general chaos. Now here, the people who were hurt, even if just temporarily because they were lassoed and hit, we'll leave out the stones, were private individuals. The shopkeepers whose merchandise was trashed were private individuals. So it seems to me that that, that's, that falls in a category where, to call it political, is highly questionable, even on the, um, all the U.N. standards. Well, Your Honor, the statute does not say, and the government seems to be trying to read into the statute the word civilians or non-civilians. Um, the statute doesn't exempt um, political actions taken that happen to affect civilians. Do you agree with the statement that's made in that U.N. brief that, that the political link is strongest when the target of the activity is government personnel and property, or is that wrong? Um, I would agree with that, Your Honor, but that does not mean that that actions that by necessity are, are diffused and not as they were in Guatemala. Um, it wasn't as if you had an armed insurrection We're talking against about what the applicant's acts were. And the next thing I read from the U.N. brief is the link is weakest when the politically motivated act, no dispute that these acts were politically motivated, when the politically motivated act is principally directed against private in- interests. Mm-hmm. And the... Whatever. I mean, the bus was privately owned, was it not? Um, yes, Your Honor, but as, as in one of the other amicus briefs, um, the, the buses were not just simply privately owned. The government had enormous involvement in the, in the bus. The individuals who were on the bus were just ordinary individuals. They weren't. That's true, Your Honor, but of course the, 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 the goal here was to prevent harm to the, to the passengers, not to hurt the passengers. The so passengers were not targeted. I'm sorry? That's why they burned them, the buses? 
Well, no. The bus, the people were moved off the buses before the buses were, were moved, Your Honor. That was the goal of moving the passengers so they would not be, harm, be harmed. The goal was to prevent greater harm to the passengers. The buses were burned as a protest of the 100 percent um, bus fare increases, which the government approved. The government in Guatemala approves the bus fare increases. It, it um, regulates the bus routes. It regulates the — What about the shopkeepers whose merchandise was just trashed? Them, did the government has no you, — you, you described a, a bus transportation that's in close with the government. But these private shopkeepers who had their merchandise trashed, for what reason? Well, Your Honor, obviously in this country, in this day and age, we don't like these, these acts. These acts are offensive to us. But that's not really the test. The test is under the conditions that, that Mr. Aguirre found himself in Guatemala — um, was this out of proportion to his political goals? Suppose, suppose I agreed with you purely for the sake of argument on three points, two anyway. Suppose I disagree. Suppose I thought the law prior to this case in the, in the board is really murky. There isn't a clear rule. Assume that with me. I'm not saying whether that's or Assume it. Assume, second, that this administrative law judge really went into this in the greatest depth. And after really going into it, he says, you know, on balance, this is a political crime. There's some things for, some against, but I think it is, basically. Then he gets reversed by the appellate, the BIA, and they do it with one sentence, just saying, well, we think it outweighs. Nobody focusing on the right test, nobody doing anything. That's disturbing to me if those assumptions are true. What principle of law would justify my sending the case back for further work by the board. Um, Your Honor, the, the principle that you mentioned earlier, which — No, I've assumed that out of it because I've said that the previous — I'm assuming — I'm going to read all that stuff, but I'm now assuming against you that the previous state of the art in the board is all murky, they don't have a clear rule, uh, and there's nothing that says you have to follow a rule that isn't there. Uh, so, so if it's, it's murky, you see, I say, say, let's assume that's all murky. And now let's also assume, which I think is true, that the ALJ here really went into this factually. And then what I think is also true is he gets reversed by the board with a simple sentence which doesn't analyze anything, which doesn't, uh, which doesn't purport to say what's the right test. It's nothing. It's just somebody saying, oh, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if all that's true, what principle of law will justify your victory, which is victory in the sense of getting it sent back? Right. Um, well, Your Honor, the board itself has um, — said on numerous occasions that the immigration judge's decision is itself entitled to deference because the immigration judge is the one who observes the witness, um, and that's certainly what happened here, um, and heard the testimony, including the, the mistakes in the testimony. I, I didn't understand that this was your appeal, that, that what you were complaining about here is the procedural failure of the board to have an adequate opinion explaining its overruling of the administrative law judge. Is, is, that, is that in your — I don't recall reading that portion of your brief. Yes, it is, Your Honor, because, after all, the Court of Appeals gave three reasons for um, reversing the board. And two of those reasons, the first two of those reasons, were the failure to apply its previous precedent and the Ninth Circuit precedent. And the third reason was the, the persecution balancing, and that's what — the balance of the government's brief and, of course, the was, was, was any of the — please let me — was any of the reasons the failure of the board to explain itself in adequate detail? Um, yes, Your Honor, it certainly was. If you'd like me to point yeah, to the section of the brief. I'd, okay. 
I mean, I, I know they said the board was wrong, but I don't think that they — I don't recall just a procedural objection. Even if the board was right, they didn't uh, — they didn't have an adequate opinion, which uh, is — Beginning on page 29 of our brief, of, Your Honor, there's the a correct standard for evaluating — 29 of what? Of, I'm sorry, of our brief. Yes. The respondent's brief. Um, and um, — Is Justice Scalia asking about your brief or about the Ninth Circuit? Well, I thought he was asking about well, whether both. the I, issue I, was whether whether the case concerned, in other words, whether we were arguing that um, the Court of Appeals did not, that, that the Board's in, failure to apply properly the um, its own test was. No, no, that, that, that isn't the point. Justice Breyer was making a purely procedural, and, and you know, I like procedure. I, I used to teach administrative procedure. And he was making a purely procedural point that even if, even if the Board was right, it didn't explain itself. And I don't recall that being in this case, either at the, at the <coughs> Ninth Circuit level or in your, in, in, in your submissions to the Court. Now, if it's there, I'd um, I think it certainly was in the Court of Appeals decision, too, Your Honor. Um, if we look may, at — may, If you can't find it, maybe you can just — No, no, I have it right here. Do you, you have it there? Yes. Um, it's, this is in the petition for certiorari, um, page um, 5A, um, 4A and 5A. Um, the Court said um, — Whereabouts on the page are you going to be reading from? Let's see. 4A on the, the second full paragraph. Um, first, the Board looked only at the offenses of Regitte, et cetera. Um, under the protocol, the Board should have first determined the nature and purpose of Regitte's acts, that is, whether they were committed out of genuine political motives. This is in the McMullen but, test. That's saying, that's saying that they didn't apply the proper test, which, which I understand that to be in the case. You're saying they didn't apply the rule that, that the Board had before. But I'm not talking about whether they didn't apply the proper rule. I'm just talking about the fact that they didn't explain, explain themselves. It was simply unexplained. And I don't recall that being in the case. Well, I think that's putting it generously, Your Honor. If you say that the, the, the board did not apply the proper rule, um, that's actually what the court accused them of having done, and that's what we accuse them of having done, too. But I think the question here is um, if they applied the proper rule but didn't explain themselves correctly. Well, but you, that's an, uh, you say the question here is if they didn't explain themselves. But I, I, I simply don't see that in the part of the Ninth Circuit opinion you just quoted, that they are, that the Ninth Circuit is saying that. The, um, the, the, they're, they're saying several reasons why the, the board was wrong, but as I read it, one of them was not that it didn't fully ex- that it didn't explain itself in its opinion reversing the immigration judge. Well, I think, Your Honor, because um, the Ninth Circuit assumed that, that there were tests in, in place. Now, Justice Breyer's question was that let's assume there are no tests in place. But the Court had a test to work with. So it was not dealing with the situation you, you suggested, which is where there's no test. And then you say, well, you did, just didn't explain yourself correctly. But, in but fact, this is worse. reversing the immigration judge. And uh, I, I understood part of Justice Breyer's question to be, you know, was the board wrong for reversing the immigration judge without giving any, any explanation for doing it? And I don't see that as being in the case. Do you think it is? Well, uh, if, you can answer that yes or no. Yeah, um, no, Your Honor, because the, the Court had more to work with. The Court had the test that the Board did not apply, that Justice Breyer wrote out of our, our hypothetical. So, therefore, the Court didn't have to say there's no test here, but you just didn't explain yourself because the Court had something more concrete to use, which was here's this test. You've adopted the test. You didn't apply the test. Go back and do it. 
that's really what the court said. What is, the court said. There's one issue of at least, it seems to me, clear, and I think we have to decide it one way or another, whatever else we decide. The Ninth Circuit said the board erred as a matter of law in failing to consider the persecution that the applicant might suffer if he returned to Guatemala. We have, as was noted, a square conflict. The House of Lords goes one way on that. A lower court in Canada goes the other way on that. We are being asked to decide that question of law. The House of Lords decided as crisply as it could. The crime either is or is not political when committed. Its character cannot depend on consequences the offender may afterwards suffer if he returns. Mustn't we decide at least that question? Either the Canada Court is right or the House of Lords is right? You, you say we don't have to. No, Your Honor. In fact, the Attorney General has not determined that question. So it may be appropriate to remand to the Attorney General to determine that question in the first instance, whether, in fact, the risk of persecution needs to be considered when you're applying this, this um, exclusion ground. So this Court certainly does not have to reach that question. Uh, well, I, I'll ask for clarification whether the, it, indeed it's true that the Attorney General has not re- resolved that issue. Right. The only um, presidential decision that the government cites for that position is a matter of Rodriguez-Coto, Your Honor, which is a 1985 decision, has never been cited again for that principle. And, in fact, it's never been rejected. And it's a flat-out statement right in the thing. We reject the balancing test. Well, Your Honor, the case did not — rejected the balancing test for two different exclusion grounds. And it did not — the case itself did not deal with — this exclusion ground, and it has never come up subsequently. And the attorney, so there's never been an opportunity. In fact, the board here in this case didn't decide it either. Um, so there's never been an opportunity for the, the attorney general to make that decision. Now, the attorney general could have drafted regulations, um, adopting one position or another, but that has not happened. So there actually is no Would you, will you point to the ambiguity in a statement that we reject any interpretation of the phrase particularly serious crime? serious non-political crime, which would vary with the nature of the of evidence of persecution. Right. No, Your Honor, I'm not saying the language itself they use there is ambiguous. I'm simply saying that the, um, the board, that, that was, this was not the issue in that case. And so it's, it's dictum for that reason. It's also dictum for the other reason that the board had three other reasons for its decision in that case before it got to this. That case well, dealt am with I wrong in getting the picture that the board has twice said it's an open question with us? One said in dictum, it's, it's closed. We're rejecting it. That's correct, Your Honor. And um, I think the board would say it was not bound by Rodriguez-Coto if it wanted to reach the opposite decision. Thank, Thank you. you, Ms. Wettstein. Uh, Ms. Millett, you have four minutes remaining. Is it true that the government has no position on the balancing test the third ground of the Ninth Circuit's decision? Uh, absolutely not. The, the position was taken in Rodriguez-Coto. It needed to be taken there because he had committed crimes in Cuba and in the United States. Those had to be addressed. And if nothing else, the Attorney General's position is clearly reflected in our brief in this case. And now the reason it was not mentioned specifically in the Board's decision is key, I would like this Court to keep in mind that the respondent didn't file a brief before the Board of Immigration Appeals. So before this Court sends it back for the Board to do it again, Please keep that in mind. Secondly, on the question of the test and was it correctly applied and consistently, I'd like to refer the Court to Petition Appendix 17A, 18A, where the the test is is quoted, uh, the carryover paragraph at the top of 17A, right near the end. 
In evaluating the political nature of a crime, we consider it important that the 17A of the petition petition appendix. We consider it important that the political aspect of the offense outweigh its common law character. Where the phrase grossly out of proportion comes in is simply in the next sentence as an example of something that would be outweighed. Grossly out of proportion is not the trust. It is proportionality or atrociousness. Ninth Circuit made it and, and we believe that they should not have done that. Second, the, the, the discussion in the following paragraph, right under analysis and conclusions, and then on the next page, 18A, there's an entire paragraph saying why that balancing was struck against the respondent in this case. Now, not only did they not file a brief, but it is our position that some crimes don't require a lot of explanation, and that masked men wielding sticks, lobbing stones, forcing people out of stores, destroying stores, and splashing gas, gasoline on buses and setting them on fire doesn't require a lot more than what the Board said here. With all that, suppose it were established crystal clear that if this person is sent back to Guatemala, he will be horribly tortured. It, it, the answer would still be the same? The answer to the withholding of deportation provision would be the same. However, as we reference in our reply brief, there is now a torture on, a conve- a torture on convention that the United States is a party to and that the Immigration Naturalization Service has recently issued regulations on, and that sets up a procedure. Convention on torture, you mean? I mean convention There, on there are those of us who think that there should be torture for convention. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. Convention on torture. Um, and that sets up the regulations, um, which I would be happy to, to lodge with the Court if it's interested, um, set a procedure called deferral of removal for someone who is disqualified from withholding of deportation but meet, can show and meet the Convention's definition of torture. What's, what's bothering me, and I can't quite get my hands on it, is this is purports to be, as it's presented, an argument about what standard to apply. But looking at the paragraph that you re- just read and the Ninth Circuit, it may be everybody agreed on what the standard was, and it's that McMullen standard, and this is really a case about whether or not that BIA board applied the standard they purported to apply. The problem and if I read through this record and come to that conclusion, I'm not sure what to do. That's why I asked the question. If this isn't really a case where people are disagreeing about standards, at least in the political, uh, no, they may be on the serious word, the word serious, but they may not be on the word political. It may be grossly disproportionate. What they mean? The, the the problem is that in addition to balancing the risk of persecution, the Ninth Circuit added two new factors, and it is not at all clear to us that those are not intended to weigh upon this political analysis. Two new factors to add on top of this disproportionate analysis. One is changing the or atrocious to and atrocious or and t- approaching atrociousness. Secondly, is necessity and success. Now, maybe they would come under both factors, but it's, I think it is critically important that this Court hold that the, that the Attorney General is not compelled to adopt those standards. Thank you, Ms. Millett. The case is submitted.